Revelation chapter 5. And when you find that, you can go ahead and be ready to turn or find also Romans chapter 15. I'll read two very short snippets of Scripture. And then for the sermon, I'll try to connect the two. Revelation chapter 5 and Romans 15. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Romans chapter 15 and verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. A lamb standing as though it had been slain, for Christ did not please himself. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, You've given us Your Son in order to freely, openly declare Yourself to us. You've given us Your Son to look and see what perfect humanity looks like, what the fulfillment of the law looks like, Holy Spirit, we know that it is your work to take the things which belong to Christ and to reveal them to us, to exalt Christ. And so we ask that you would bless our time, that the things which we have written concerning the Lord Jesus would leave a great imprint upon our minds and our hearts that as we behold the glory of the Lord as it shines in the face of Jesus Christ, that we would be transformed. For Christ's sake. Amen. Having been given a, an up-close look at the circumstances surrounding the churches in Asia Minor, you'll remember that John has been taken up in the Spirit into the throne room of heaven. And he's being reminded of what is the only rock, the only secure place in the universe, and that is the Lord God omnipotent. And we've been reminded that our God rules unopposed upon His throne, that He has the divine right to continue to unfold redemptive history, and that He's doing so in the Mediator, the Lord Jesus. The lesson that we're learning here is that if we will take the time to, to study and to know and to remember and to consider God and His Christ, this is the means that's been given to us as, as comfort. This is the means to comfort, the means to consolation in every time and in every place for every saint. This, this is what it means to think on heavenly things. 
Set your minds on things that are above. What is above? God is above. Who's at the right hand of the Father? The Lord Jesus is above. We set our minds upon Him. This is what calms the soul. That's, that's the point of, of this section. And so as we've moved into chapter 5, we're focusing on this description of the, the, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. He's described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Root of David. As the dominating king, he has prevailed to open the scroll of history that's in the hand of God. And yet in spite of those references, when John looked, he saw a lamb standing as, that, as though it had been slain. We saw that last week. This lamb was typified in the first Passover and the exodus from Egypt. Then asserted by John the Baptist, he is pointed out as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... And now when we see him here at the end of the Bible, he's already been slain, he's been killed, now he's been raised, exalted, and we find him between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He's right in the center of the, the court of heaven, in the center of all of the worship, we find this, this lamb as though it had been slain. And remember what I'm trying to do is take this picture of the lamb, this lamb image, and if you could picture a mosquito, I'm trying to land down on it and just suck as much life's blood out of it as I can, especially while we're, our services are a little different and they're, they're shortened. And again, as our world is in constant fear and constant panic, if we could just focus our attention on specific traits of Christ. What I'm about to show you is going to be very meager, a meager attempt, but if you just settle your mind down on, on an attribute of Christ in His, in his humanity, we, Christy and I were talking about just, just to try to imagine a perfect man. It's impossible. We can't picture it. We've never seen it. All we have is revelation. And if you would give your mind to do that, you don't have enough time to consider the things that our world panics about. So we're looking at little short meditations on the person of Christ. Last week we talked about His meekness. Calm, selfless resignation to the providence and prerogative of God to deal justly in all things in His time and in His manner. Meekness is not just being gentle. It's not just being humble. It's not weakness. It's not allowing yourself to be a doormat. The other extreme, meekness is not arrogance or pride in one's position. We might think of meekness as as someone who's emptied themselves of all self-will, they've emptied themselves of all vain philosophy, emptied themselves of all worldly wisdom, they've been rebraced inside with the rebar of God's Word, then they've had the, the concrete of the Holy Spirit poured inside, it's hardened up, and then they've been draped with silk. That's the idea of meekness. Strong, bold, unwavering, selfless rigidity built upon the revelation of God... And at the same time, no felt need to defend oneself, to advance oneself, to promote oneself for the sake of, of, of self. Able to simply and calmly trust in God who orders all things well and does all things right. We saw that Christ is the most perfect embodiment of weak meekness to ever walk the face of the earth. Now we're going to consider another trait of this lamb. Very similar to meekness, but it is different. Remember that he sees the lamb standing as though it had been slain. So this 
this lamb had already at some point in the past had its life taken from him. So I would suggest that the slain lamb epitomizes again in the animal kingdom the human virtue found in Christ, the virtue of self-denial. Self-denial here to the greatest extreme. This lamb has been denied its very life. Now, all of us recognize that self-denial is virtuous. We, we see stories of, of firefighters who run into a burning building, of police officers who throw themselves in harm's way, of soldiers who are awarded the Purple Heart because they, they put themselves in harm's way for the sake of their fellow soldiers or even laid down their lives on the battlefield. And we, we recognize there's something about that that is awesome. We understand that. At the same time, almost everybody recognizes that the opposite is repulsive. Selfishness is repulsive to men. Selfish, self-pleasing, self-absorbed people. Nobody wants to be around that type of person. Selfishness is very often self-destructive. People who give themselves over to self-gratification, usually they destroy themselves in the process. Usually they're so self-absorbed that they, they live their lives at the expense of or to the neglect of others. So they don't, not only do they destroy themselves, they destroy others. We understand self-denial is praiseworthy. Selfishness and self-absorption is not praiseworthy. Now again, when we, we come to the lamb, we know that an actual lamb would not exhibit self-denial, but this is not an actual, literal lamb. This is the lamb of God, Christ Jesus the Lord, set forth as a lamb whose life we know had been taken. At the same time, we know that the Lord said in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This lamb had been slain. We could say that passively. He was killed. And at the same time, we can say that actively, he laid down his own life. He denied himself the right to physical life. This is the, the benchmark of self-denial. Christ Jesus epitomizes self-denial in human form. So let's do like we did last week, and let's just think about what is... What is self-denial? What does it mean to deny one's self? First, we need to define self. I'll quote this from Thomas Manton. He says that self is a man in all his lusts, a man in all his relations, a man in all his interests. Life and all the appendages of life are one aggregate thing that in Scripture is called self. He goes on to say later, a man's self is whatsoever is of himself, in himself, belonging to himself. That is self. Now we know that Christ Jesus as God incarnate had no lusts in the sense of sinful carnality. But as a true man, he had desires given to him by God as, that are common to the natural condition of all men. He had interests. He had relationships. He had a physical life that had all of the various needs that came along with it, just like any true man. He had a self, we could say. To deny is to refuse to gratify the felt needs or the characteristic issues of self, and so self-denial is just that. It's refusing to gratify the wants or the felt needs of the issues coming from one's self. 
the Lord Jesus lived a life of self-denial. He denied himself the most basic natural human inclinations. He denied himself his rightful claim to more than what is common to the rest of us. Although he is, and in his humiliation, was fully, truly all man, he deserved more than us. He, he, he had a rightful claim to more than us. And he denied himself even those things. So I want us to just think about his self-denial in, in, in three areas. His essential divine glory, his basic human inclinations, and then his essential physical needs. So first, his essential divine glory. The, the self-denial of Christ with regard to his essential divine glory. Now what do I mean by that? What's, what's, what's the essential divine glory? It's the thing that Jesus spoke of in John 17 when he prayed, Father, glorify me with, and here's the phrase, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world began, Christ had a glory that was his essential divine glory. The effulgent shining forth of the divine nature described in, in Scripture as light that no man can approach unto. Unapproachable light. Christ Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is that light. We get to see a little picture of this in Matthew 17 in the transfiguration. He's, he's shining brightly, brighter than any launderer could have ever washed his clothes. It's, it's blinding, this glory belongs to the Godhead, and thus it belongs to Christ Jesus as the eternal Son of God. What I'm saying is the Lord Jesus exercised a self-denial with regard to that essential divine glory. Now it's here from the outset we learn, or we're reminded that the Lord Jesus exercised a self-denial that none of us will ever be able to exercise. No man before, no man after could ever reproduce this self-denial. No man has ever been God everlasting. No man has ever owned divine glory beside Christ. The earthly glories that men might have for whatever reason, whether it's, whether it's financial fame, whether it's military power, political power, whatever, whatever glory a man might have that, that others look at and they can recognize some sort, of, some sort of elevation in a man, that's like chimney soot compared to the sun, comparing men to Christ he, in His essential divine glory. And He denied Himself the shining forth of this glory. Now when we say that Christ refused to gratify the wants or felt needs of the issues coming from His essential divine glory, we're not saying, as some people say, that He laid aside His deity to come to the earth. That's called heresy. We don't believe that Jesus Christ laid aside His deity to come to the earth. He was no less God in the womb of His mother Mary traveling to meet her cousin Elizabeth than He was when He created the worlds. He was fully, completely, truly God, even in the womb. So what does it mean for him to deny this glory? I'm saying what I'm trying to describe is he refused to cling to the true, full manifestation of it. And in so doing, receive the affection and praise that it would have certainly induced in men if he would have shined forth. Think of it this way. Jesus could have come the first time 
in the same manner in which He's going to come the second time. And if He would have done so, His appearance on the earth would have garnered the same reaction from men as it will garner when He comes the second time. Fear and trembling and terror from some, faith and belief and joy and worship in others. He could have come that way in His incarnation, but instead, Philippians chapter 2 says that though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now notice there's, there's a negative and there's a positive to this, this denial of His essential manifest glory. Negatively, He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to, a thing to be white-knuckled. Imagine one of your children has a toy, another one of your children comes to take that toy, grabs it and begins to pull, or the other one clings all the more tightly and says, No, I'm playing with this. This is mine. He could have said, no, this is my divine glory. I've had this from all of eternity. I'm not letting this go for those creatures. But he didn't. He didn't cling to it. His true and manifest glory is God the Son. But positively, he actively emptied himself by taking took upon himself the form of a servant. He, as we say, he veiled the glory of the Godhead in a servile human nature. He went from the praises of angels to the voices of his parents muffled by amniotic fluid in the womb. He condescended from the center of heaven's court to being dismissed from an earthly inn. He who is the image of the invisible God had no beauty on earth that men should desire him. Though he could not but draw attention and glory and praise and adoration in the court of heaven, he came down to the earth where men hid their faces from him. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. He was rich, heavenly rich, creator, sustainer, owner of all worlds, and yet He became poor, born into the house of a tradesman, was Himself a carpenter. Why? So that you by His poverty might become rich, so that you and I could have a title to that heavenly inheritance that was His. From all eternity He had the glory of the Godhead, all of the glory of Mount Sinai, all of the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration, all of the glory of the road to Damascus. He had that from eternity. It's His. He owned it. His by nature and by right. Drawing men to praise Him. Demanding certain submission. When Saul of Tarsus saw it, he says, Lord, from the outset... You can't but see it and submit and worship. It commands authority and power. Leaving men without question as to who is in control. If He would have come in that glory, it would have, even a, a glimmer of that glory would have garnered from all of the earth the very best treatment, the best room in the inn, the best home, the best of everything. People would have just lavished Him with things on the earth. But He... He set that aside. He denied himself that privilege. While maintaining the fullness of the divine nature, 
with no reduction or mixture whatsoever, he willingly set aside that manifest glory and cloaked it in the form of a servant. Not only the servant of Yahweh, but a servant of men. John 13, he serves his disciples by washing their feet. He says in Mark, uh, Mark 10, 45, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many to serve men for our salvation. He denied himself the right to cling to and display the full manifestation of his divine glory with all of the privileges that would, it would have doubtless obtained for him on this earth. That's the extent to which we will never understand. We can't fathom this type of self-denial. Secondly, he denied himself his basic human inclinations. I would define this as those proclivities or tendencies or dispositions that are inherent, inherent in some form in all men, in all people. We wouldn't say they're essential for life, but typically we pursue these things out of comfort, out of expediency, something that God has ingrained in us. Think about it this way. Think about your own lifestyle. When, when, when women are desiring or planning to give birth, most ladies would say, I would like a comfortable place to give birth. I would assume that ladies think, I'm, I'm expecting some congratulations from my friends. Most desire to show off a new baby and let people see their child. When it comes to our living standards, most people, especially here, want things like energy-efficient doors and windows. If we have to go to Walmart and buy a pillow, we would rather a pillow out of cotton than versus sand or rice. We like climate control. If I've got to buy shoes, I would rather rubber soles than wooden soles. When it comes to pursuing a job, most people are looking for a career that has some sort of advancement. People aren't looking for the job where the person across the interview desk says, now listen, we're going to start you off at this, this much per hour, but that's going to increasingly go down every two weeks until eventually we just fire you. Nobody wants that job. They want to know that this is going somewhere. When it comes to working our jobs, we, we tend to want to work smarter and not harder. When it comes to peer relationships, most people would rather be liked than disliked. Most people would rather be hugged than punched in the face, all things being equal. When it comes to physical comfort, most would rather take a Tylenol than just sit and endure the dull ache of a migraine. When it comes to family relationships, most of us would rather our homes be a place of harmony than discord. We would rather get along with people more than we would have, want to have conflict. When it comes to people in authority, most bosses would rather be obeyed than challenged. If you're a parent, you would rather your children obey you and submit rather than constantly challenge your authority. When the sun goes down at nighttime and it's dark outside, most people would rather sleep than not sleep. We're created by God with these, with these inclinations. Now these things are not absolutely essential for life. We do have to sleep, but you don't have to sleep every night to stay alive. And these things are not inherently sinful at their root. They're just things ingrained in men by nature 
They're innate to us as human beings. But as we survey the Gospels, we see that the Lord denied Himself even these basic human inclinations. He was born into a poor family. And we know He ordained all of this. He's, he's the one who decreed this to be. He was born into a poor family, laid in a manger, visited by some wise men. When it came to the congratulations, He was welcomed into the temple by two elderly people. There were probably not any blue balloons on Joseph's mailbox when he got home. Nobody signed up to bring them meals. When it came to submission to authority, we read in Luke 2.51, And he went down with them, that is his parents, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now think about this. Human parents, sinful parents, sinful human first-time parents, Lord of glory, invented parenthood, created it, had every right to say, no, you obey me. I'm the authority. I have to be about my father's business, and that means you do what I say. But rather, he was submissive to them. He denied himself that rightful claim to authority as a man. At his baptism, rather than being the officiant, he denied himself the right and submitted to being baptized by somebody else. And even John recognized the incongruity of this. I, I shouldn't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. You're the, you're, when it comes to the, the authority structure, you're up here. You should be officiating my baptism. He could have walked away with the reputation, the one who baptized the baptizer. And he didn't. He said... I have to fulfill all righteousness. He, he, he gave himself to that, denied himself whatever accolades would have come from that. When it came to his living standards, we know the text, Matthew 8, 20. He said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He denied himself the comforts of home, of a regular bed, a pillowcase that smelled of his laundry detergent, he didn't have it. He denied himself these things. When it came to sleep, Mark 1.35, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Luke 6.12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now don't think of these only in terms of how spiritual the Lord is and how, how close his communion with God was, think about this from a human standpoint. This is a man, just like us, who denied himself sleep to pray. How difficult is it for us to deny ourselves nine minutes of, of the snooze? And yet, he regularly denied his flesh to spend time with his God, his Father, when it came to his ministry style, you probably don't know this, but men in the ministry in our day, if you're going to go and speak somewhere, they have what's called a writer, which is something that they require to be on that end, to be fulfilled before they will come. It's this much money, uh, this place to stay, these, these things laid out. You provide these things and I'll come. This is, this is how men operate in our day. Christ didn't do that. 
Let me read to you from his... Just think about the ministry of this man in Mark chapter 1. This section, again, we, we usually just think about the fact that he got up and he prayed, but notice the, the timeline of events. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. The whole city, at evening, at sundown, they didn't just appear at the door at sundown. As the sun's going down, the city begins to come. They gathered at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew Him. And rising very early in the morning. So he got. it does seem like he got to sleep maybe some. But rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. There he prayed... And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let me get a nap first. That's not what he said. He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. That I may preach. Have the opportunity. I get to preach there. That I may preach, for that is why I came out here. I came out here to pray so that I could go preach. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, do we not think that there was something in him that said, you need a break? These people are coming to you. Those people, they might not like you. We think about Adam before the fall versus Adam after the fall. We know that work became difficult after the fall. So that means prior to the fall there was something in man that made work a delight and a pleasure. There's something in us that craves ease of work. And yet the Lord denied Himself that and pursued a most laborious ministry. In Luke chapter 4, it says in all people, the turn of this scene is... is Amazing. All people spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, remember that for the revelation, three and a half years, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the widows of Israel, but only to the, the one in Zarephath, the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. He begins to get the feeling that they're, they're clamoring to Him, they're, they're, they're marveling at Him for something that they might can get out of it. They're, they're having some positive thoughts about Him, but those thoughts are sort of misguided, and He refuses to let them go on just speaking well of Him. As soon as He gets the hint that they're not thinking rightly, He stops it. Now, how many of us have been enjoying a conversation, a smooth, conflict-free conversation, and because we are believers, we're thinking, I need to get to the gospel. I need to get to the gospel. But then we're reminded, if I begin to speak truth, this conversation is going to go from smooth and easy and bubbly to serious and even confrontational. And so we don't do it. 
Why? Because we want this relationship that I'm having, this conversation, we want to walk away, even from a stranger that we've never met before, we want to walk away from them leaving a good and happy and pleasing impression in their minds, even if it was false, even if I leave them walking away in ignorance of the gospel, I would rather have that than to have them think ill of me. Christ denied Himself that pleasure of walking away from every conversation, leaving people happy about Him. We, we love to be at ease in Zion. We, we want to have people like us. He denied Himself that. When it came to His reputation, Luke chapter 15, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Luke chapter 19, when Jesus came to the place, He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Amongst the religious leaders, the religious teachers, we could say his, his peers of profession, He was hated. These religious leaders were no doubt expecting and waiting for the Messiah to come. They held great sway over the people. He could have spoken in such a way and acted in such a way as to slowly develop the relationship with them and be accepted by them, but he would not. When it came to a reputation with these men, he denied his rightful claim to be held in high esteem amongst these men. And we, we see this in our day. Think about the, the, the books. You, you buy a book, you flip it over on the back of it. And you read the, the accolades of men. What are, what are they doing? They're saying, I want to show you the people that you already love who also love me so that you will love me. It's, it's a constant feeding of this, this frenzy of puffing one another up in each other's eyes, of getting the accolades of our peers. And Christ said, I will not have the accolade of those men. How many people have we ever known who held positions of authority? We know Christ had authority. God in the flesh. But how many do we know have positions of authority? And with every word and every action of their bodies, they force you to remember, I'm in charge. Even when they don't need to. Even when it doesn't have to be confrontational. Even though when it doesn't have to be harsh, they will not let you forget who the boss is. Christ denied Himself the showing forth of this type of authority. When it came to physical suffering, we all know it's natural for men to pull their hand from a fire, to, to flinch from the prick of, of briars, to keep yourself from suffering. This is natural. But in Matthew 26, Christ prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He denies himself the liberty of scooting away from the suffering and the pain. He defers himself to the will of his Father. As he hangs on the cross, they offer him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. The, the, the thing that would have dulled the pain just a little, just something to take off the edge, something to make reality not quite so real. He says, no, I'm taking this. He denied himself that for us and for our salvation. Again, these things are not essential to life. They're not sinful in themselves. It's not sinful to not want to be 
hurt. That's normal. That's common. He had every right to lead with authority. He had the right to better than average living standards. He had the right to a good night's sleep, an upstanding, respectful ministry, the esteem of his peers, the blunting of physical suffering. He denied himself all of these things. And then lastly, we see his self-denial with regard to his essential human needs. These things that we, we must have, like food and water. We know that he went 40 days without food and water in the wilderness. At another point in John chapter 4, when the disciples brought him something to eat. He said, I've got food that you, you don't know about. My food's due to the will of my Father. Now, we don't talk about fasting very often, but how contrary is it to human nature to set aside a day, in the words of Scripture, to afflict yourself, deny yourself food and drink in order to communion with God, a better communion with God then and moving forward from then. It's, it's contrary. How contrary is this to the way we live and act? How, how close in a typical home, how, how far away are the snacks? Just in case you get a little urge. You might not even be hungry. You're just bored. How much will we spend at a gas station? Above a reasonable price for food and drink. Simply out of convenience. Because we don't want to wait for supper. How common has it become to get an appetizer at a restaurant? Because, you know, I don't want to starve to death while I'm waiting on them to make my food and bring it to me. I've got to eat something. We, we, we are driven by our bellies. Driven. Our, and our, our Lord was so busy with the work of the kingdom that the sustenance of His physical body was set on the back burner. He understood if I'm about my Father's business, He'll take care of that. He'll sustain my life. On the contrary, when I'm all about sustaining my own life, I'm going to be so busy with myself, I won't be about my Father's business. But even the little snippets of time that I do give to the Lord, I have no faith that He's going to pour out His blessing upon that time because it's just a, a, a little snippet of time before I can get back to satisfying myself. The Lord was not this way. Going beyond that, we see the extent of the self-denial of our Lord. Again, as the slain lamb, denying himself the essential right to life. Isaiah 53 and verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He did not say a word as they led him to the slaughter. Why? Because this is the supreme act of self-denial. He, he would not lay a claim to the physical life that he had. He was laying down his life as the sin-bearing Lamb of God. So we can summarize our Lord's humiliation in those words of Romans 15, 3. Christ did not please himself. I, I fear most of us live every moment of our lives pleasing ourselves. It's just from one pleasure to the next. Any, any hiccup in that plan is, is to be avoided at all cost. Christ Jesus didn't run into a burning building, but He endured the fury of hell itself for our sake. He didn't take a bullet for His fellow soldiers. He suffered for His enemies. 
to make us His brothers. He commands us, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why is that the case? Because he denied himself. He took up his cross. If you're going to follow that man, then you've got to do what he did. You've got to live like he lived. So examine yourself. Is Christ being formed in you? Can you look somewhere and say, I see some, some shadow of self-denial in my life? Is there any shadow whatsoever of this type of self-denial? And that, uh, that's real self-denial. Not, not like, oh, I'm going to go without this, but I'm going to be really upset about it. Real self-denial, positive Actively denying oneself and the urges of one's flesh for the sake of the kingdom of God. Can you find a hint, a vapor, a whiff of self-denial? If Christ is being formed in you, there's going to be somewhere where this is being nurtured and developed. Would you have this virtue increased in you? How do we increase in these virtues? By looking unto Jesus. Setting our attention upon Him, looking at Him, studying Him, and praying that the Holy Spirit would manifest these graces in us. Isaac Ambrose says a, a fruitful meditation on all of these particular virtues of Christ, a fruitful meditation cannot but cause some resemblance within and make thee like Christ. It can't but do that. This is the means that God has given. Look at Him. Study Him. Pray in His virtues, in the power of His Spirit, and you will be changed. The reason men are not changed is because they're not looking at Him. They're not. So as we come to the Lord's table... Set your heart upon the cross of Calvary and think, meditate. The Lord Jesus denying Himself, laying down His body, shedding His blood for us to bind us into an everlasting covenant with Himself. To, to, to ensure that we receive all of the eternal blessings. Give yourself to that thought and then we'll come to the table together.